You're listening to the Unheld in News and Review and Pharisee Watch, brought to you by We Hold These Truths. Each week, we look into the events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media, and we analyze these events. Just as in Jesus' day, Pharisees still walk the earth. Among them today are the celebrity Christians who support wars in the Middle East to protect Israel. In our Pharisee Watch portion of the program, we feature stories about the unchristlike acts of these modern-day Pharisees. Our programs are led by Charles E. Carlson, the founder of We Hold These Truths, and author and editor of the Pharisee Watch, and unheralded news features on our website, whtt.org. Joining Chuck are four other founders of We Hold These Truths, Travis Steele is the owner of Steele Engineering. Mark Horton is the president of Ultra Clean Corporation. Chuck McCollum is the owner of Oakshade Development. And Tom Compton is a retired sales engineer and your announcer. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Ford. Welcome to our podcast. In today's installment of Pharisee Watch and Unheralded News, We're going to take time to pause and reflect about the now 64th anniversary of the occupation of Palestine by the Israelis. And this is a piece written by William James Martin, who teaches at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. And this is a piece that comes from the Palestine Chronicle. Leslie, would you read this for us, please? Note that our friend Emily Baker, Selwa, lived through this very incident in Haifa. We have an interview with Selwa, who lived there and was forced out of the area, and this is what this letter details. At that time in 1947. November 29, 1947, was the date the UN passed the Partition Resolution Partitioning Palestine more or less equally, into a Jewish and an Arab state. In fact, the ethnic cleansing commenced the very next morning when the 75,000 Arab citizens of Haifa were subjected to a campaign of terror jointly by the terrorist group, the Ergun, under Menachem Begin, and the Haganah, the regular militia, under David Ben-Gurion. The Jewish settlers who had arrived during the previous decade had built their homes higher up the mountain and thus occupied a higher topographical space. From the superior height, they could snipe at the villagers at will. They began doing this while the Jewish troops rolled barrels of burning oil down their roads and then ignited them. When the terrified residents came out, out to try to extinguish the rivers of fire. They were sprayed with machine gun fire. Another technique was to deliver cars filled with explosives to Arab garages to be repaired and then to detonate the cars in the garages. On its website, the official historian of the Palmach, a special unit of the Haganah, states, quote, the Palestinians in Haifa, were from December onwards under siege and intimidation, unquote. 
This was the beginning of the ethnic cleansing and occurred six months before the first regular soldier from a surrounding Arab state entered Palestine, which was on May 15, 1948. I remind you that the Der Yassin massacre occurred on April 9, 1948, and also that by May 15, all of the major cities of Palestine had been cleansed of Arabs and about one-half of the 750,000 to 800,000 Palestinian refugees had been ethnically cleansed. This was the beginning of the expulsion of the Palestinians, Arabs, from Haifa and from Palestine. The ending for Haifa's Arabs came on Passover evening of April 21st, when the British commander Stockwell called four Arab community leaders into this office to inform them that the British Army would be evacuating the city and advise the Arabs that they could not be protected. As Elan Pape puts it, quote, previous correspondence between them and Stockwell shows that they trusted him as the keeper of law and order in the city. The British officer now advised them that it would be better for their people to leave the city where they and most of their families had lived and worked ever since the mid-18th century when Haifa came to prominence as a modern town. Unquote. Pepe, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, page 94. You might say parenthetically, Ilan Pepe is a Israeli uh, Jewish-Israeli histor- historian or something like that. You don't want to say that? Yeah, you, you say it. Uh. Okay. Um, <laughs> Pape is, is an Israeli uh, writer who wrote this book um, as a, a Jewish historian. Pape continues, quote, It was Mordecai Makhlef, the operation officer of the Carmel Brigade, who called the shot. Makhlef orchestrated the cleansing campaign and the orders he issued to his troops were plain and simple. Quote, kill any Arab you encounter, torch all inflammable objects, and force doors open with explosives. Unquote. When these orders were executed promptly within the 1.5 square kilometers where thousands of Haifa's defenseless Palestinians were still residing, the shock and terror were such that, without packing any of their belongings or even knowing where they were going, people began leaving en masse. In panic, they headed toward the port where they hoped to find a ship or boat to take them away from the city. As soon as they had fled, the Jewish troops broke into and looted their houses. In the early hours of dawn on 22nd of April, the people began streaming to the harbor. As the streets in that part of the city were already overcrowded with people seeking escape, the Arab community's self-appointed leadership tried to instill some order in the chaotic scene. Loudspeakers could be heard urging the people to gather in the old marketplace near next to the port 
and seek shelter there until an orderly evacuation by sea could be organized. The Jews had occupied Stanton Road and are on their way, the loudspeakers blared. The Carmeli Brigade War Book, chronicling its action in the war, shows little compunction about what followed thereafter. The brigade's officers, aware that people had been advised to gather near the port's gates, ordered their men to station three-inch mortars on the mountain slopes overlooking the market and the port, where the Rothschild Hospital stands today, and to bombard the gathering crowds below. The plan was to make sure the people would have no second thoughts and to guarantee that the flight would be in one direction only. Once the Palestinians were gathered in the marketplace, an architectural gem dating back to the Ottoman period covered with white arched canopies, but destroyed beyond recognition after the creation of the State of Israel, they were an easy target for the Jewish marksmen. Haifa's market was less than 100 yards from what was then the main gate to the port. When the shelling began, this was the natural destination for the panic-stricken Palestinians. The crowd now broke in the port, pushing aside the policemen who guarded the gate. Scores of people stormed the boats that were moored there and began to flee the city. We can learn what happened next from the horrifying recollections of some of the survivors published recently. Here is one of them. Quote, Men stepped on their friends and women on their own children. The boats in the port were soon filled with living cargo. The overcrowding in them was horrible. Many turned over and sank with all their passengers. Unquote, Pape, page 96. Thus it was the Jews who pushed the Palestinians into the sea and not vice versa. In March of 1948, a month earlier than the events described above, the so-called Plan D or Plan Dalet as a further crystallization of plans A, B, and C, was finalized by David Ben-Gurion and those who were continually in consultation with him and distributed to the Haganah commanders. This document was a blueprint for the destruction of Arab villages and expulsion of its residents within the 78% of Palestine coveted by Ben-Gurion, not the 55% apportioned to the Jewish state by the UN General Assembly. By this time, 30 Arab villages have been either destroyed or depopulated. By the year's end, 531 Arab villages would be destroyed and 11 Arab neighborhoods in urban areas. One revealing paragraph of this document states, quote, These operations can be carried out in the following manner, either by destroying villages, by setting fire to them, 
by blowing them up and by planting mines in their rubble, and especially those population centers that are difficult to control permanently or by mounting combing and control operations according to the following guidelines. Encirclement of the villages, conducting a search inside them. In case of resistance, the armed forces must be wiped out and the population expelled outside the borders of the state." Unquote. Between the time that Israel declared itself a state in May of 1948 and the summer of 2005, Israel killed 50,000 Palestinians, according to Israeli historian Ilan Pape, writing in Foreign Policy, in the summer of 2005. And since October of 2000, Israel has killed 6,430 Palestinians, according to the website, if Americans knew. The latter figure averages to about two Palestinians killed per day by Israel, 1,932 by my calculation. According to the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition, Israel has destroyed 34,000 Palestinian homes in the West Bank and East Jerusalem since 1967 and, in the same period, about 800,000 olive and citrus trees in the West Bank and Gaza, resulting in a loss to the Palestinian economy of 55 million, according to a recent estimate by the International Humanitarian Relief Agency, Oxfam. And in Israel's winter assault on Gaza in 2009, Israel destroyed between four and 5,000 homes and either damaged or destroyed as many as 50,000. Many Gaza families spent the winter of 2010 living in caves dug out of the rubble of their destroyed homes because the area is under siege with building material not allowed to enter. Because of the siege of Gaza, babies are frequently born with anemia because their mothers are not getting enough nutrition and because of the lack of food allowed into Gaza and because of the destruction of agricultural areas inside Gaza. The stunting of growth because of the lack of nutrition of Gaza's children is prevalent, and I have seen this figure put at 14%. Israel, a state which had never clearly defined its boundaries, invites Jews from all over the world to immigrate to Israel and expand its ranks along with its boundaries into Arab lands. One thing is certain, Israel is not the victim, as it is constantly screaming, but the victimizer. Thank you, Leslie, and that, it is so true. They have done a fantastic job of maintaining this air of being victims, playing on the Holocaust and the atrocities there, and deflecting things like this to the point where many of our brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, would deny all this to the point that they would say that this was all propaganda because uh, the Palestinians are terrorists by nature. 
It couldn't be true. I mean, it's too uh, horrible. It's too horrible, yes. It is, and I, I think that um, Emily Baker, in her interview that we did some years ago, and uh, what that, is, that uh, has been mentioned and is still available, told us of the the, uh, the the way in which they were expelled from their homes, and it's very similar to what was told about here. Uh, they simply were, the neighbors were going in and being pushed out of their homes. They went in the street to uh, help their neighbors. When they turned around and looked, there were Jewish families, not Israeli Jews, but just Jewish families simply walking in and taking over their house. They never got back in. And uh, they uh, were And other buildings were, were exploded. Others were exploded. She described it almost exactly this way. And they did yeah. indeed leave by port. They actually got on a boat and were one of the lucky ones. And the reason they were able to do that is that they were a kind of a prominent educational family that ran schools, and they had some uh, money saved up, and they were able to actually buy their way onto a boat. She hid the money on her person. She was so skinny that she could hide the money on her person and make it through. I think uh, that was the story. She also recalled hearing a mother screaming, on the boat, my baby, my baby, because what had happened was in the in in running to the boat, she grabbed a pillow instead of her baby. Oh. And people uh, were trying to pull her back onto the boat because she was going mad. So this but is it all was, true. It was, uh, this is, yeah. I was just going to say Emily and her brother were friends with the military, the British. And they were just as shocked at the situation as as they were. And they were a Christian regards. family, as I recall. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. They actually ran a Christian missionary of some kind there. Uh, they taught, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And after 64 years, the suffering continues, the hardship that's being experienced by the Palestinian continues, and with the evangelical church, to a large extent, turning their backs on what's happening there because of this belief that the modern state of, of Israel is wrapped around the belief that uh, it is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And we can see this by an example of some correspondence Chuck just received from one of our listeners and supporters of We Hold These Truths. Chuck, would you give us some details on this, please? Yes. Uh, last Wednesday, I received a call from a man who is a retired attorney, but whose mother is uh, still very, very much alive and active. And um, he said that he was a refugee, a withdrawer from the Judeo-Christian churches that held that Israel was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And it is a problem that he now understands and what Christian Zionism is really all about. And, uh, and he is, to his horror, he's unable to talk to his mother and his stepfather about this. Uh, this man is a very distinguished fellow, a former attorney, and uh, he's quite ca capable of conversing with people, but he's having trouble talking to his own mother, and he described the problem with me and said that his mother depended upon a 
Schofield Reference Bible, and she had pointed out to him by referring to the book of Genesis chapter 17, which is one of the several places where that contains the old covenant promise of Abraham to Abraham, from God to Abraham, and she believes that this promise that God made to Abraham confers the present-day land that the Palestinians have lived on for generations to the new state of Israel. And she therefore vehemently believes that, and it's all based upon the interpretations that she finds in her Schofield Reference Bible. And I received a letter from this man only today, and he said that he was responding to my answer to him. I answered his telephone call with a letter, and I suggested how he should go about talking to his mother, and I suggested that they that he study the DVDs that we have made on Christian Zionism with particular references to the sections on Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 that talk about this covenant. And uh, he, he answered me saying, thank you, I planned on ordering the DVD from your website as well as other literature you have available. Last night I got a bit of a discussion with my mother and her husband regarding Israel, and the first thing my mom did was to break out a new Schofield reference Bible and give it to me. And he uh, attached a photo of the cover so I could see what she'd given him. She quoted Genesis 17:8, wherein she said, God gave the land to Abraham. And so, she said, it means that God gave the land to Israel. She means Israel today, uh, not Israel of Abraham's time 3,000 years ago. In fact, we point out in our paper that there was no Israel at the time of Abraham because he wasn't born yet. And he goes on to say, I want to get your take on the Bible verses because I have questions as to whether Abraham represents the modern nation state of Israel, question mark. I'm also going to go through the new Schofield edition per your video and highlight the applicable Zionist influence text. Uh, can you believe that one day after we had our conversation, my mother hands me a new Schofield Bible, question mark? So he's on the right track. We've told him how to approach it. He's going to approach it that way. And he said, and I, and I uh, made further suggestions to him by letter, carefully telling him how to, how to plan this so that he wouldn't offend his mother and he'd keep the doors open to discussion and yet how to um, lay the groundwork so that she would start seeing this for herself. And he said uh, in, his in his third response, uh, that's exactly what I thought. The school field gives me a perfect opportunity to bring up the various points in your video, and they will be able to draw their own conclusions based upon the facts. And friends, this shows a lot of good common sense, and that means that we can only present the powerful evidence and the truth, and it really is up to other people to uh, come to these conclusions for themselves the way this man did, this man who I'll call Jason did, and uh, the way each of us has done in separating ourselves from the movement called Christian Zionism. We discovered it by evidence, uh, factual evidence, and applying common sense. Uh, other people have to do as much. And that is, of course, also true of this wonderful story that Leslie has read, this uh, terrible story about what actually did happen that we know to be truth, but we know so many people will simply say it's a yarn. So we have to prepare ourselves carefully, present the evidence, make sure that we have really sound backing, stay on the topic, don't get, uh, don't get on the side topic, stick right with the issue and stay on a Christian perspective, 
about what would God say about these people being murdered in their homes, having their homes burned, being driven from their homes, and being even murdered with guns as they waited and tried to get on ships. This is uh, something that we have to approach by careful evidence and uh, then patience and never getting upset, never expecting too much, and waiting for people to to see through these things in their own way. And we've done when we've done all that we can, then we must simply, as Jesus said, shake the dust off our feet and move on. Great. Thank you so much for that extra report there that adds quite a bit to the problem that we're still facing here in the United States primarily with what we now call angry evangelicalism or more commonly known as Christian Zionism. Thank you, and that's our report for tonight. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.